You're listening to the MoneyWeb Now podcast series with Simon Brown. Live streamed every weekday at 6.30 a.m. Wednesday, 17 January, Chinese year-on-year GDP 5.2% versus an expected 5.3%. I'm Simon Brown coming at you live and loud from the MoneyWeb Global Headquarters in Johannesburg, South Africa. On the show today, Viv Governor from Rand Swiss. I want to pick his brains around China. He's been bearish on China. Is he still bearish on China? Uh, Francis Marais from Morningstar, South Africa. Uh, investing offshore, currency risk and allocation, asset allocation. The latter, perhaps the more important. And then Dr. Andreas Nienhaus, uh, he of... Uh, Oliver Wyman, mobility in Africa is expected to double by 2030 to an $8 billion industry. The show is brought to you by Stanlib. Visit stanlib.com to get in touch with one of their investment specialists. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. Morning headlines from MoneyWeb. Rabeck challenges challenge of Prosser Bridge tender award dismissed. It's due to submitting its urgent interdict application late. Uh, business day, Time Bank eyes top three spot after profit breakthrough inside of five years. Time Bank credits the bank's longstanding strategic relationships with the likes of Pick and Pay, Boxer, Fashini Group and the Zion Christian Church. Morning markets, US was red, S&P down 0.4%, NASDAQ uh, 0.01% down. East, mostly red, Sydney off 0.4%, Tokyo up half a percent, Hong Kong down 2.6% and Tencent off 3.2%. Commodities, all red, gold, $2,030 an ounce, Brent, seventy-seven ninety-one, Platinum, nine oh one, and Palladium, nine. Forty-one. The rand is at nineteen to the dollar exactly. Bitcoin forty-two thousand nine hundred. Top forty opening call a four hundred and fifteen point red open. That is zero point six percent to the downside. MoneyWeb now on the money. Also available on podcast. I'm chatting with Viv Governor from Rand Swiss. Viv, appreciate the time. Over the last year or so, you've been all positive on artificial intelligence. Fair enough. But the other side of that coin is you've been bearish on China for some time now. My question to you is, are you still bearish on China? Are you still got worries around China and Xi Jinping? Oh, yes, most certainly. I think, as I've told you before, people don't get better after the age of 70, which Xi Jinping is at the moment. And unlike in the US, where we're going to have a couple of eight-year-olds after you know, this weekend, probably you know, fighting for the presidency of the US in you know, a few months' time, those guys don't really make a difference to the world. I mean, Biden is pretty much you know, out of, it seems to be out of the running in terms of like, you know, running the country mm. and the country just functions pretty much as it should be. In China, it's different. Xi Jinping has a lot of power. Some of the moves he's made recently around things like gaming, around talks around Taiwan, etc., you know, have really not been great for the Chinese economy overall. And I do think that that's going to continue going forward. And speaking of which, I mean, we had the Taiwanese election, and it does seem that uh, Taiwan is basically moving away from China. And that means that we are probably going to be seeing more, you know, rhetoric around, you know, the possible, you know, possible adding of Taiwan to China, which is not great. I take your point, and he isn't backing down. I mean, you mentioned the crackdowns then. We saw a lot of those in 2020, 2021 against games, against education companies, against Ant Group. And there was a sense that perhaps he had moved on from that. But just, you know, just I think it was late last year, he did another crackdown. Tencent was off over 10% in the day. He's not moving on. He's not maturing or mellowing. 
Oh, yeah, no. And then look, I mean, you need to look at the history of the man himself. I mean, he spent like, you know, several years living in a cave during the communist revolution because his family fell out of you know, favor. Mm. He's not a normal politician. Like, he's not a Macron. He's not a, you know, a, a Rishi Sunak. He's not a Biden. He's a very different kind of, you know, beast than we have there. And if you look at just how he basically, you know, got into power and held on to power, you know, he was pretty ruthless about, you know, making sure that any rival of his was, you know, eliminated, you know corruption, like, you know, crackdowns or whatever. Yeah. Look how he's treated, uh, like you said, the you know, Alibaba group with the, you know, Jack Ma, who's effectively, you know, pushed out entirely now from uh, Chinese business. You know, this is not a place where you want to be, you know, investing over the next couple of decades as a guy that has absolute power effectively turns from 70 to 90. <laughs> I get your point around the investment case, and I'm looking at the, the Satrix China ETF, which is the easy point for me to look at, and, and it's a terrible graph. It's going from you know top left to bottom right, which is exactly the wrong way around. But can China grow in spite of? And I ask this because you know for the commodity world, which is big in South Africa's life, we need a good China GDP, or is there risks of Chinese GDP stumbling at the same time with Xi Jinping? Uh, almost certainly. I mean, look, if you had a, a very competent leader, there, there'd still be issues in the Chinese economy that are very significant. Uh, their property sector investment has been ridiculously, you know, uh, high. Mm. Something like a two thirds of private, you know, wealth was held in property. People basically, it was a third of the GDP of the country almost, and that's obviously falling apart because demographics have changed. And you've seen, like, you know, videos I'm sure of them demolishing these massive towers yeah. that were built for no reason at all. So that is a, a major crisis happening, bigger than I think 2008 in terms of what it was for the US versus China. They have a demographic issue. You know, they are basically aging. Their peak working age population was a decade ago, and they are aging while they are still reasonably poor. They're not Japan. They're not the EU, where you have you know, an aging population, but you know, would you know, significant savings, etc. No, this is an aging population without all of that. And in fact, in some ways, they are aging faster than other parts of the world because their one-child policy plus, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the general trend has been, you know, very bad. I think they have a TFR below one and you need 2.1 or 2.2 to be a replacement level population. So those are all issues. And they also have issues with regards to, you know, uh, the U.S. turning against China, you know, the Taiwan issue. The, the other side of the Russia, you know, Ukraine thing, it seems to be they are being, you know, sanctioned with regards to the future technology, AI, as you know, I, I love AI. Mm -hmm. And China is being pushed out of that market, at least out of the global the ecosystem for AI. So, yeah, but there's a lot of factors against the country. And at the same time, you have a, a leader who is not, I think, up to the task of doing what needs to be done. Remember, China grew when uh, the Deng Xiaoping, I think it was, name, his name was, if I pronounced correctly, came to power. And the next two leaders were effectively people he chose. Yeah. Okay. This is the first one who he did not choose. And it could just be a return to the norm for China. And, you know, the return for the norm for China was not very good. Yeah, I take your point. And of course, that impact of the one-child policy, most definitely coming home to roost. We leave it there. Viv Governor Rand Swiss, always appreciate the insights. And that's our poll today on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. China, are you bullish or bearish on, on, on China? Uh, Viv is very bearish and has been for a while. Uh, the Hang Seng Index is almost back at 2009 levels. Yeah, that's Hong Kong, but there's a lot of Chinese stocks in there. Uh, and even the Chinese index is not looking great. Have your vote, have your say, LinkedIn and Twitter. Hear that? Nothing. Your money can do more when it blocks out the noise as hard as it is these days. When you invest in the Standler Balanced Cautious Fund, we manage the risks so that you can see stable inflation-beating returns through market cycles. Invest with more certainty at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib is an authorized financial services provider and a registered manager.
MoneyWeb now on the money. Chatting now with uh, Francis Murray, he's head of product at Morningstar South Africa. Francis, appreciate the early morning. South Africans spend a lot of time focusing on our currency and exchange rates against the major crosses, most notably, of course, the dollar, but euro sterling as well. Uh, first question, when investing offshore, how much should we consider the, 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 the current exchange rate? Or is that a, a, a sort of a minor point in the bigger picture of offshore investing? Good morning, Simon, and good morning to the listeners. Yeah, it's obviously a, a very big, big point or point of discussion when when clients or investors think about investing money offshore. Um, we think that currency is is obviously important, but there's by there's by far other larger drivers of returns over the longer term, um, such as your asset allocation and the underlying investment that you ultimately choose when you go offshore. That has a far bigger impact on your returns than the currency. So um, so stop being so fixated on the currency and also think about the asset allocation and the actual investment that you choose when going offshore. And then you're obviously very, very important. What are the reasons why you want to go offshore? Um, I think if you can answer that, you have a proper financial plan, um, currency probably plays less of a role. I, I take a point on that, and I want to come to asset allocation in a moment, but you mentioned reasons, and everyone's going to say, well, it's about return. That's not wrong, but there's bigger pictures. I mean, you know, one of them is just our, our JSC is, I mean, in the investable universe, there's a couple of hundred stocks. Uh, we step beyond our borders, and there are literally tens of thousands. It's just more optionality in terms of an investor, most notably in the tech space, for example. We've got nothing local. There's tons offshore. Sure. So that's a that's a very valid reason. So you have diversification, um, obviously that's happening globally in different regions, different sectors, as you mentioned. That broader opportunity set very very big role, and um, that international diversification can play. You obviously also then have access to different currencies. Mm. Um, so it's not just the US dollar, as you mentioned previously. And then some people might have expenses in the future that they want to hedge against. So they might want to retire offshore. They might have children and so that's going to go and study offshore. Um, so mm. those expenses you want to hedge, and, and those are all valid reasons why you want to go offshore and then if you if you answer in that context um then the currency probably plays yes currency should play a role but it probably becomes less of a you know issue um when looking at those different reasons i take the point it, it, it sort of fades into the background perhaps asset allocation perhaps is 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 the biggie and 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 you know it's, it's a significant driver of returns but i always look at it particularly for a a diy investor as perhaps the really hard part of of of, of getting the investing right in terms of which assets and when yeah, that is very, very difficult. Our obvious choice would always be that uh, investors engage their financial um, advisor, and hopefully the financial advisor can leverage of the skills of a company like Morningstar, for instance. Mm-hmm. But a simple a simple approach, if you do want to have offshore exposure, is probably your um, multi-asset funds. That always gives you a good um, entry point. Um, your currency exposure there is also then managed by your underlying manager. So that's that's I would say that's probably the best choice um, at this point in time um, if you are a DIY investor and looking for some offshore exposure. Then you obviously have a myriad of other choices. You have feeder funds in South Africa. Yeah. And then once you externalize assets and you actually go offshore, there's even more choice and it becomes really, really difficult deciding amongst all these different choices. So I really, really advise you to, to partner with somebody to help you with that. I, I take your point. It, it's a little overwhelming. I mean, 
remember the first time I had a, a look at one of the offshore exchanges. It was just too much for my brain to comprehend. Uh, uh, last question. We're talking uh, so far around the direct offshore uh, investment. In, in the recent note you put out, you also talked around asset swaps. Now, I mean, they were really big a couple of decades ago. Obviously, the, the, the limits that the, in terms of uh, externalizing money have, have moved significantly, no longer hindering most people. Are asset swaps still something worth uh, considering? We think so. It's um, it's a lot easier for clients um, to access. You have lower minimums. Um, it's part of your normal, you know, normal lists. Um, you can access that facility. Um, it's probably also a bit easier from your um, estate planning perspectives. Once you go offshore, direct offshore estate planning becomes really, really important. Citus taxes, probate, all these things. Mm. So we still think it has a major role to play. Um, unfortunately, your choice is obviously not as much. But having said that, some you know, less choice isn't always a bad thing. Um, there's some decent strategies and assets classes available to access via your feeder funds or asset swap funds. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, the, the, the tax and such just becomes a, an, another whole challenge. And again, uh, while there's a good argument for experts, we'll leave it there. Francis Murray, head of product, Morningstar, South Africa. Appreciate the early morning. Your money knows that reaching new heights means turbulence. When you invest in Stanlib's global multi-strategy diversified growth fund, your money can withstand the unpredictable ups and downs caused by day-to-day market fluctuations. Because our partnership with J.P. Morgan Asset Management gives you access to a broad range of global strategies. Seek more returns at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. MoneyWeb now on The Money. I'm chatting with Dr. Andreas Nierhuis. He's a partner, automotive and mobility, climate and sustainability at Olivier Wayman. Andreas, appreciate the time today. You and your colleagues recently put together a report, Shared Mobility's Global Impact. And one of the numbers that really jumped out is that shared mobility in Africa expected to double by 2030 and ultimately be worth almost 8 billion US dollars. This is going to be a giant industry across the continent. Well, yes, it's a very exciting time to look at shared mobility in Africa given its growth and the technological developments that we can see currently and that we are about to see in the future. So, yes, relatively speaking, it's going to be a massive increase and it's going to be a big and attractive market for all sorts of participants and also for the end consumer. Globally speaking, obviously, there's still a catch-up game to do. Mm -hmm. On the global scale, the market is by far larger and still growing, but we see very strong growth, particularly in the African region. And a lot of this is going to be driven, as you say, we're coming off a low base within the African continent, but we also, we've also we got a bunch of mega cities that are going to drive this, new cities that are going to become mega cities and are going to help drive this huge growth going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where does the full potential of shared mobility solutions truly unfold? It's within densely populated areas, so within mega cities, and we see above average growth of mega cities and metropolitan areas on the African continent. So this is basically the perfect playing ground to establish more sustainable and more social solutions to get people from A to B. So it's a perfect place to establish these new forms of transport. You mentioned the getting to A to B. I mean, one of the things in Africa is that often cities don't have very efficient public transport and you know, car ownership is, frankly, out of reach of many people. This, in many ways, is going to help drive economies within the continent. Yeah, I fully agree. And there's still one thing we need to keep in mind that shared mode of transport is more efficient than privately owned. Yeah. 
Although there's obviously a convenience advantage most of the time if you own your own car, but once you're stuck in traffic, this convenience diminishes. <laughs> we still need to make sure that the new services are catering towards all sorts of parts of our society and especially helping people who do not have access to mobility at the current stage mm -hmm. to get from A to B and not just cater to the top 1% to have an even more convenient way to travel, right? And it's important to combine all sorts of transportation modes and services to make really the best for all of us. And also another big net win is, I mean, it creates jobs for the ride-hailing drivers. Many of these drivers might have skills, but they simply can't get employed. And in many cases, these jobs are paying better than comparable jobs that they could potentially get. Yeah, so the ride-hailing driver makes up a large portion of the job opportunity that will emerge and is currently emerging in the shared mobility industry. And we took a very close look within our Oliver Wyman study on how these jobs are to be evaluated. And on the one hand, you have to look at the, at the pure financials and mm -hmm. ride-hailing drivers have the possibility to earn well above minimum wage or comparable wage, whatever applies more in some countries we don't have full minimum wage. So we looked at comparable wage for equally qualified jobs. And one thing that really sticks out is that drivers who want to work in the ride-hailing industry, they need to get access to vehicles. Otherwise, the attractiveness and the financial opportunity of the job gets smaller. So the regulatory entities, but also the large mobility service providers, they need to come together to offer or to enable drivers to own a vehicle or finance a vehicle yeah. or lease a vehicle to do their job. Yeah, my next question is going to be around challenges or perhaps ideals. And that was certainly one of them, the cost of the vehicle for the driver. The other is investment into road infrastructure. I mean, yeah, in, in the heart of the yeah. cities, it's probably there. But more broadly, there's a lot of infrastructure challenges as well that needs to be addressed across the continent. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very critical point, especially if you look at the mobility ecosystem as a whole. And you, you're not talking only about personal car-related mobility services, but mm -hmm. also want to include e-bikes and uh, micro-mobility solutions. It doesn't really make sense to talk about these and say they're attractive for the society if you don't have the infrastructure in place to ensure safe travel, right? If you don't have bike lanes or sidewalks mm -hmm. that help people commute independent of a car, then obviously there's something the regulator needs to, needs to help develop to foster this entirety of the mobility ecosystem. We'll leave it there. That's Dr. Andres Nihas. He's from Oliver Weinman. Andres, I really appreciate the time today. That's it for today. We were chatting yesterday with Christo De Witt from uh, Luno SA, talking about the, around those uh, listed uh, Bitcoin ETFs in the US. They were approved uh, Wednesday evening and 11 started trading immediately on Thursday. A couple of folks said to me, what's the difference between them? They were Bitcoin. So really the difference is, uh, do you trust the provider and what is the expense ratio? But we asked you uh, whether you were interested and almost half of you said, no, no thanks, no crypto for you. Uh, a fifth was saying, no, you know what, you already hold some crypto. You've gone to a, a bespoke exchange and bought there. Uh, a fifth said, actually waiting for the JC Bitcoin ETF. I asked Christo about that. It's been declined in the past, but uh, the SEC in the US does sort of set global trends. I think we'll see one, but I don't think it's going to happen in a hurry. The rest were saying, yep, very keen. Have your vote, have your say, LinkedIn and Twitter. 
This show is brought to you by Stanlib. Visit stanlib.com to get in touch with one of their investment specialists. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. We're live every weekday morning. The Money Web website and the app 6.30 a.m. podcast just after 7. Thanks to my team, Eddie, Nobochle, Nicole, to you for listening, my guests for their time. My name is Simon Brown. This is Money Web Now. We'll chat again tomorrow, the FinTech Household Resilience Index. You've been listening to another MoneyWeb Now podcast, posted every weekday at 7 a.m. on moneyweb.co.za. MoneyWeb Now, on the money.